Blog Talk Radio. radio show now on the air for over nine years. Thanks for Cyber Radio, we have identified over 50 countries in nearly every continent. So here we are again, talking about our favorite way to fly, Eastern Airlines. We can truly say we are the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and along with the host from many different areas in the U.S., we say welcome to our Eastern world. We're starting our program tonight by giving honor to our brave men and women who have given their lives for our beautiful and free country. Host Captain George Chen, would you like to open the show tonight? George, let me turn your microphone on and you can start our show. Just as soon as I can click this microphone. You're on the air, George. Okay, thank you very much, Neil. Uh, today is Memorial Day, and it's a day to reflect and remember on our heroes in all wars that were fought for American freedom and liberty. We'll play a, a most unusual story about the last fighter pilot in World War II. Uh, but first, let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman before we hear the clip. Uh, Jerome Jerry Yellen was born on February 15, 1924, and died on December 21, 2017. He was an Army Air Force World War II fighter pilot who fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima and who flew 19 very long-range, that is, VLR, combat missions over Japan. He has been credited with flying the final combat mission of World War II in a North American P-51 Mustang against the military airfield near Tokyo, on August 14, 1945. That was on August 15, 1945, local time in Tokyo. In his later years, he became well-known for his reconciliation with the Japanese people and for his work in helping veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, what we call today PTSD. He was also the author of four books, including Of War and Weddings and Autobiography. On January 29, 2014, Texas Governor Rick Perry honored Yellen's military service and commitment to help veterans by making him an honorary Texan. I also heard from uh, a former Eastern pilot, Nick Vredos, who uh, took over for me here in New York after uh, I left uh, writing the uh, newsletter. 
And Nick uh, sent this to me. He said, I met Jerry at Oshkosh every year for the past 10, more than 10 years. Uh, one of the events, the Warbirds of EAA, they sponsor a parade of veterans along the flight line. At the appointed time, we line up by service affiliation in March, that is mainly walk now, down the flight line in front of the crowd gathered for the air show. Jerry would be there every year in his World War II uniform, a wheel hat with 50 mission crush, and I think he carried a swagger stick. He was always as lucid as he is here in the interview. He, his bearing was erect, and he showed absolutely no effects of his age. He was really a great, gregarious, outgoing guy. I last saw him at the 2017 Oshkosh show. He passed away in December of that year of lung cancer, I believe it was. He was 93 or 94 years old, and he was also the last pilot airborne after the surrender of Japan because he missed the recall message. On that mission, he lost his wingman, actually after the surrender, which was a needless loss. And uh, if you could play the clip of uh, Captain Jerry Yellen, Neil, thank you. Okay, thanks, George. Here we go. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that today, 70-odd years later, 73 years later, the memories are so fresh in your mind and so fresh in my mind. And people don't know about these things. They just don't know about them. On December 7th, I made up my mind I was going to fly fighter planes against the Japanese. I was 17 years old. And I was on Iwo Jima, eight square miles of land, eight square miles, 67,000 Marines fighting against 23,000 Japanese, 90,000 soldiers. And when I landed with my cockpit open, I smelled the smell of death, and it never went away from me. There were 21,000 bodies rotting in the sun, Japanese, and nearly 7,000 Marines. I flew with 16 guys who didn't come back in my squadron. Five guys were killed in training accidents in Hawaii, and 11 guys were killed in combat. Three of my wingmen were killed. Three of my wingmen. It's probably the most memorable, uh, the most precious time of my life was to be with other guys who were protecting me, and I was protecting them, fighting for my country. I don't regret one moment that I served in the war. The 30 years after, I can't talk about it. From 1945 to 1975, I was a basket case. I couldn't work, I couldn't do anything. I didn't speak to my family for 43 years about what I did. They knew two things about me. They knew I flew a P-51 over Japan, and they knew that I bailed out of a P-40. And I was asked to go to Japan in 1983 and I thought they were crazy because Japan was not a place I wanted to visit and the Japanese were not human beings that I wanted to see. I came home and I told my wife I turned down a trip to go to Japan and she pointed her finger around, Jerry, you never asked me if I wanted to go to Japan. So in October 19, <coughs> 1983, I went to Japan and I was blown away <coughs> by what I saw, what I felt. Robert was a senior at San Diego State, so we came home, we gave him a trip to Japan, six-week homestay. And in 1984, he went there for one year to teach English, and now it's 2017, he never came back. He got married to a Japanese woman whose father was a kamikaze pilot with 500 guys. He told me he wanted to get married, and I said, what does her father say? The father wouldn't meet him. It took seven months for him or for her 
Takako to convince her father to come and meet my son. And the father didn't talk. And when he did talk, he asked my son five questions. How old is your father? 63. Was he in the war? Yes. What did he do? He was a pilot. What did he fly? P-51. Where? Over Japan. And that ended the meeting. And he went home and said to his wife, make the wedding. And she went crazy ballistic, shouting at him. For 43 years you've been telling me how much you hate the Americans. And now you want our daughter to marry this guy, Gene, this American foreigner? And he said, yes. And she said, why? He said, any man that could fly a P-51 against the Japanese and live must be a brave man. I want the blood of that man to flow through the veins of our grandchildren. George, would you continue? Uh, Sure. Memorial Day is an American holiday. We observe this on the last Monday of May each year, honoring the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. Today is that day. We do honor to our fallen heroes. Originally known as Decoration Day, it originated in the years following the Civil War and became an official federal holiday in 1971. Many Americans observe Memorial Day by visiting cemeteries or memorials, holding family gatherings, and participating in parades. Unofficially, it marks the beginning of the summer season. We hope that all our listeners will take some time before the day is over to remember. And in tribute, we would like to close this portion of our show with the following sounds that justly, that justly pay honor to this holy day. Oh.
and to all that have fallen in the past. Thank you, George, and hello, Eastern family and friends. As our producer said, we're glad you're with us for more of Eastern talk, news, and information. My name is Chuck Albright, and I'm coming to you live from the villages, Florida. Our producer, Captain Neal, is in St. Augustine, and our hosts are scattered all over the country. Jim and Carrie Holder live in Atlanta area, Mike Scott in the New York area, George is up in the New York area, out on Long Island, along with George. He's living nearby. Coning de Fleece is in Wesley Chapel, Florida, just north of Tampa. And Dorothy and Don Gaglin is in the villages and Florida, just north of me a little bit. Mark Barter is in the Miami area, where I used to live. Mr. Producer, if you see any of our other regulars, please let us know. From all our hosts, welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show over the past nine years plus. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. We'd love to hear your comment, share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during our broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611. Just say hello. Talk to us on the air, live every Monday evening. Many of our listeners choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Now, to remember to abbreviate the word CAPTAIN to C-A-P-T, should you wish to talk during our broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits. 213-816-1611, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. By the way, tell your friends about us. Our membership is growing. We're now up to 1,040 Eastern family and friends. Our lines are always open for calls, but if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises such as barking dogs and slamming doors and ice cubes and beverages and 
ringing phones. That's why we put the mute feature on your phones. And now I see we're number one for takeoff. So, Captain, let's get flight 459 in the air. Wind 10024, runway 13 right, clear to take off. Roger, clear to go.
good day. We're gonna give our dream a try. Today's the day this puppy's gonna fly. When dawn breaks, first light, first fight. Whatever it takes, we gotta get this right. Right? 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 Sorry, fellas. I just don't see how it's going to work. Took off by the deep blue sea. The freezing wind smacked dab in the faces, but the brothers right were off to the races. 120 feet at 6.8 miles per hour, but the flyer flew by its very own power. They really only made it 10 feet off the ground. I've been higher on a horse on a merry-go-round. Yet at Kitty Hawk on a winter morn, the world was changed, a new age was born. The earth got smaller and man got taller. Future's light looked bright as a shiny silver dollar. I don't know how we know this, but a citizen named Archytas was reputed to have designed and built the first artificial self-propelled flying device. It was a bird-shaped model propelled by a jet of what was probably steam, and it was said to have flown some 200 meters, which is about 660 feet. This machine may have been suspended for its flight. Now to more modern times. The Wright brothers... Some years later, many years later, received a patent, which was centered on the patent they had previously received for their method of an airplane's flight control. The Wright brothers were two Americans who were widely credited with inventing and building the world's first flyable airplane and making the first controlled, powered, and sustained heavier-than-air human flight on December the 17th, as 1903. During their experiments of 1902, the Wright brothers succeeded in controlling their glider in all three axes of flight, which are pitch, roll, and yaw. Their breakthrough discovery was the simultaneous use of roll control with wing warping, twisting the wings somehow, and yaw controls with a rear rudder, which we know about that, and a forward elevator in front of the pilot. The pilot controlled the pitch of the aircraft with that. In March of 1903, they applied for a patent on their method of control, which they wrote themselves, was rejected. In early 1904, they hired an Ohio patent attorney, always go for a lawyer named Henry Toulmin, T-O-U-L-M-I-N. And on May 22, 1906, they were granted the U.S. patent number 8213934A, quote, flying machine. 
him. In 1906, the Wrights received a patent for their method of flight control, which they fiercely defended for years afterward, suing foreign and domestic aviators and companies, especially another U.S. aviation pioneer, Glenn Curtis, in an attempt to collect licensing fees. Even after Wilbur Wright had died and Orville Wright had retired, in 1916, selling the rights to their patents to a successor company, the Wright Martin Corporation, the patent war continued and even expanded as other manufacturers launched lawsuits of their own, creating a growing crisis in the U.S. aviation industry. The patent war stalled the development of the U.S. aviation industry, although this claim has been disputed in research. As a consequence, Airplane development in the United States fell so far behind Europe that in World War I, American pilots were forced to fly European combat aircraft instead. After the war began, the U.S. government pressured the aviation industry to form an organization to share patents. Now let's turn our attention to some other items associated with the airplane. Mike, what do you have? Yes, thanks, Carrie. The beginning uh, with letter A. Our first instrument would be an altimeter, an instrument that measures vertical distance with respect to a reference level. It can be given altitude of the land surface above the sea, or it can give the altitude of an airplane over the ground. French uh, physicist Paul Louis Paul Calet invented the altimeter and the high-pressure manometer. Calet had an interest in aeronautics, which led to a developing to developing the altimeter to measure the altitude of an airplane. In 1928, German-American inventor named Paul Kohlsman changed the world of aviation which he, uh, with the invention of the world's first accurate barometric altimeter, which was also called the Kohlsman window. His altimeter converted barometric pressure into the distance above, feet, uh, above sea level in feet. It even allowed pilots to fly blind or do instrument flying. We all like to know how fast we are going. So, Don, whom do you have for our next instrument? Oh, thanks, Mike. Another A on the list would be the airspeed indicator, or the ASI. The first reliable airspeed indicator was the U-tube manometer called the Velotube, a Velometer, designed and patented by Frank Short at the Royal Aircraft Factory and Farborough in 1912. Connected to the pedostatic head on a winged strut allowed the measuring instrument to be well away from the airstream, the slipstream. While the indicator could be placed in front of the pilot, the velometer was manufactured by uh, Calcella and Elliott Brothers and was often supplied to the military aircraft on a standard instrument panel. North, south, east or west, which direction do you like the best? North, south, east or west, which direction do you like the best? It's going north. 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 going south. South. It's going north and south and east. East. It's going north. North. It's going south. Which direction do you like the best? North, south, 
east or west? Which direction do you like the best? Four cardinal directions, that I know. North, south, east, and west we go. Or mix them all up, then go fast, not slow, to the sunshine or the snow. I like south. And she likes north. And they're loving west and east. She likes east. And he likes south. And their favorite Let's find out where we are. As you just heard it explained to the youngsters in the compass song, the magnetic compass is one of the most misinterpreted instruments in the cockpit. It's not possible to state with any degree of certainty who actually invented the first compass, but it may have been in use by the time of the Quinn dynasty, which was 221 to 206 B.C., that's before Christ. The earliest compasses were lodestones. This mineral is made of iron oxide, which orients itself to a north and south axis. Liquid compasses were adapted for aircraft. In 1909, Captain F.O. Cray Osborne, superintendent of compasses at the Admiralty, introduced his Cray Osborne aircraft compass, which used a mixture of alcohol and distilled water to dampen the compass card. After the success of this invention, Captain Cray Osborne adapted his design to a much smaller pocket model for individual use by officers of artillery or infantry and received a patent for it in 1915. However, the magnetic compass, in my opinion, would be the first true instrument. Of the seven standard flight instruments, the altimeter, attitude indicator, that is the artificial horizon, airspeed indicator, magnetic compass, heading indicator, turn and, and uh, indicator, and vertical speed indicator, the magnetic compass was not only an existing instrument, but would have become a natural necessity as flying evolved from the daylight, good weather, overground with recognizable landmarks to nighttime, over water, or mountainous terrain, or limited visibility, things like that. It's not without error, however. That's making it difficult when used alone to interpret. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Chuck, you're up. Now let's go outside the airplane for this next one, retractable landing gear. The first retractable landing gears showed up on airplanes just after World War I. They didn't become a common currency of flight until the mid-1930s. Matthew B. Sellers II, Sellers invented the retractable landing gear in 1908. Most World War I planes had fixed wings on a common axle held by struts. After the war, we held each wing, wheel on its own tripod of struts. We also began experimenting with retractable landing gears. By 1930, Boeing and Lockheed had made commercial planes with retractable wheels. Jack Northrop also had an experimental experimental with retraction, and he loved the streamlining. He cooked up the alternative, so to speak. Northrop shaped cows around vertical struts holding each wheel. He called these cows trousers. The bottom of the wheels looked like dainty little shoes at the end of bell-bottom trousers. Other markers followed in his lead. Amelia Earhart and Wiley Post set records with planes whose wheels 
were cased in teardrop spats. Jim? Okay, thank you. Oops, now, we probably should have put this next one up with the other two A's, the artificial horizon. Lawrence Burst Ferry was an aviation pioneer. He was the third son of the gyrocompass co-inventor, Elmer Ambrose Ferry, and his wife, Zula. Ferry invented the first autopilot, which he demonstrated with startling success in France in 1914. Ferry is also credited with developing the artificial horizon, which is still used on most aircraft into the early 21st century. In 1918, Lawrence Ferry married film actress Winifred Allen in Flying Magazine, reported that they were the first couple to take an aerial honeymoon as they flew from Emmettville, New York, to Governor's Island, a distance of about 31 miles. I don't know why anybody want to go to Governor's Island for a honeymoon. Some five years later, 13 December 1923, Sperry took off in foggy conditions at the Burville Sperry in a Burville Sperry M1 messenger, that's some type of aircraft, from the United Kingdom headed for France, but he never reached his destination. His body was found in the English Channel about a month later on January the 11th, 1924. There's a website using the name the Mile High Club regards the <laughs> club's founder as pilot and design engineer Lawrence Perry, along with, quote, socialite Mrs. Waldo Pierce, me, Dorothy Rice Sims, citing their flight in an autopilot-equipped Curtis flying boat. Must have been a lot of room in there. Near New York in November 1916. He is quoted thusly, Why Mrs. Pierce and I didn't have what you might dignify by calling a real accident. It was only a trivial mishap. We decided to land on the water and came down perfectly from a height of 600 feet and would have made a perfect landing had not the hull of our machine struck one of the stakes that docked the water, which saved a hole in it. Now, I'm not sure why all that qualifies as a mile-high club, but I suspect the gentleman <laughs> never fails. He was a gentleman. In 1979, Sperry was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Sperry was inducted into the Naval Aviation Hall of Honor at the National Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida. That was in 1992. Eastern Air Transport was the first commercial airline to fly the Sperry autopilot system in regular operation. Now, Carrie, I'll see you in the next one up, so be real careful, okay? Okay. Okay, dear. (laughs) Just because you have trouble pronouncing French words and names doesn't mean I can't pronounce pedo. Now, let's talk about a piece of equipment outside the airplane that without, it would not be possible for instrument flight, and in some cases, visual flight, the pitot tube. Also known as pitot probe, is a flow measurement device used to measure fluid flow velocity. The pitot tube was invented by the French engineer Henri Pitot. 
in the early 18th century and was modified to its modern form in the mid-19th century by French scientist Henry Darcy. It is widely used to determine the airspeed of an aircraft, water speed of a boat, and to measure liquid air and gas flow velocities in certain industrial applications. A pitot-static system is a system of pressure-sensitive instruments that in most often used in aviation to determine an aircraft airspeed, Mach number, altitude, and altitude trend. A pitot-static system generally consists of a pitot tube, a static port, and a pitot-static instrument. Errors in pitot-static system readings can be extremely dangerous as the information obtained from the pitot-static system, such as airspeed, is potentially safety critical. Several commercial airline incidents and accidents have been traced to a failure of the pitot-static system. Examples include Australinius Aeris Flight 2553, Northwest Airlines Flight 6231, Virgin Air Flight 301, and one of the two X-31. The French Air Safety Authority, BEA, said that pitot tube icing was a contributing factor in the crash of Air France Flight 447 into the Atlantic Ocean. In 2008, Air Carabas reported two incidents of pitot tube icing malfunctions on its A330s. Virgin Air Flight 301 had a fatal pitot tube failure, which investigators suspected was due to insects creating a nest inside the pitot tube. The prime suspect is the black and yellow mud dauber, wasp. Aero Peru, Flight 603, had a pitot static system failure due to the cleaning crew leaving the static port blocked with tape. Mike, how are you at French? Well, I'm not so good at French or English either, for that matter, but uh, <laughs> thanks, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a try. Now that we've been mainly talking about fixed-wing airplanes, let's turn to our, our discretion to aircraft whose wings rotate. Uh, the helicopter uh, Paul Coru, a French bicycle maker, is credited with inventing the helicopter in 1907. His invention is the first helicopter as we know it today, and it's managed to, it managed to lift off the ground about one foot for about 20 seconds. Igor Sikorsky was an American citizen born in Russia who invented the mass-produced helicopter, which was known as the R-4. Indeed, there was a total of 100 of these helicopters made at the time. They played a significant role during World War II. In fact, by the end of World War II, Sikorsky had produced more than 400 helicopters, including not only the R-4, but also the R-5 and the R-6. They built their helicopters specifically for the military, which used them mostly for search and rescue missions. Today, Sikorsky is known as one of the most well-known developers of the helicopter, and there is little reason why this is so. Don? Uh, thanks again, Mike. Can any one of these inventors and designers have simple names like Jones or Smith? <laughs> Back in <laughs> I'll vote for that. Inside the airplane and the helicopter, the next item is used for safety, and that's why we call it the aircraft seatbelt. Although a standard in today's vehicles, seatbelts are a relatively new invention, first designed by Edward Kelgore in the mid 
1800s. Seatbelts were only uh, for the occasion, uh, occasionally used by people, like painters and firemen and so forth, whenever they needed to be raised or lowered from a high location. Because of the specific nature of these safety belts, it took another 60 years before the design was improved for the use in transportation. In 1911, pilot Benjamin Fuloy decided a device for his aircraft that would hold him in the seat firmly. He enlisted a local saddle shop to design a seat belt for him. It was a huge hit, but took almost 20 years for the seat belt for the common United States aircraft. By World War II, however, every U.S. military plane was equipped with a seat belt. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, we couldn't talk about powered flight without speaking about the power plants that do all the work. For example, on aircraft engines, in 1848, John Stringfellow made a steam engine for a 10-foot wingspan model aircraft, which achieved the first powered flight, albeit with negligible payload. Then in 1903, Charlie Taylor built an inline engine, mostly of aluminum, for the Wright Flyer that totaled a grand amount of 12 horsepower. In 1903, Manley Bowser engine set standards for later radial engines. In 1906, Leon Lavasseur produced a successful water-cooled V8 engine for aircraft use. Then, in 1908, René Laurent patented a design for the ramjet engine. In that same year, Louis Seguin designed the Gnome Omega, the world's first rotary engine to produce in, that was produced in quantity. And in 1909, a Gnome powered Farman 3 aircraft won the prize for the greatest non-distance flown, non-stop distance flown at the Reim Grand Simon d'Aviation, setting a world record for endurance of 180 kilometers, which was about 110 miles. Chuck? 1910, Cardona. 1910, unsuccessful duck fan aircraft exhibited at the Paris Aero Salon with pistols powered by a piston engine. The aircraft never flew, but a patent was filed for routine exhaust gases into the duct to augment thrust. Austere Ratons suggest using exhaust power compressor, a compressor, a turbocharger, to improve high, high altitude performance. Not accepted after the test, unfortunately. Laflung number R30-16, example of the Imperial German a Zeppelin Strucker R-4 heavy bomber became the earliest known supercharger equipped aircraft to fly with a Mercedes D-2 straight six engine in the center fuselage driven by a Brown Bouvier mechanical supercharger for the R-30-16 four Mercedes D-4A engines. In 1918, Stranford Alexander Moss picks up Ratatoon's idea and creates the first successful supercharger. In 1926, Armstrong Stiley's Jaguar 4S, the first series produced supercharged engine for aircraft use, 
It's two, they used a two-row radio with a gear-driven centrifugal supercharger. Hmm. 1930, Frank Whittle su- submitted his first patent for a turbojet engine. Jim? Uh, following on with that, uh, June 1939, the Hickle HE-176 is the first successful aircraft to fly powered solely by a liquid-fueled rocket engine. <laughs> August 1939, the Hinkle HES-3 turbojet propels the pioneering German Hinkle HE-178 aircraft, making progress. 1940, the Jenderowski, and I don't know if I said that right, CS-1 was the world's first run of a turbo engine, but it was not put in service. 1943, name of Benz, DB-670, the first turbofan engine runs, and it must have run pretty good. 1944, the Messerschmitt ME-163 Comet is the world's first rocket-propelled combat aircraft. It's deployed in the war. I guess we've probably all seen pictures of that. And in 1945, the first turboprop-powered aircraft flies, a modified Gloucester meter with two Rolls-Royce print engines. And the biggie. In 1947, the Bell X-1 rocket-propelled aircraft exceeds the speed of sound. Take over, Carrie, please. Okay. <laughs> In 1948, 100 shaft horsepower, 782, the first turboshaft engine to be applied to aircraft use. In 1950, used to develop the larger 280 SHP, 210 kW, turbo Mecca Artuste. 1949, Ledoux 010, the world's first ramjet-powered aircraft flight. In 1950, Rolls-Royce Conway, the first production turbofan inner service. 1968, General Electric TF-39 high-bypass turbofans inner service delivering greater thrust and much better efficiency. 2002, high shot scramjet flew and dived. 2004, NASA X-43, the first scramjet to maintain altitude. Mike. Thanks, Kerry. There are so many components and instruments that we could share with you tonight, but because of time restraints, we'll have to continue this discussion in a future show. We can tell you, though, that Boeing is number one in patent in aerospace and defense industry. The top listing resulted from a study that was conducted by the 1790, not the year, uh, and Alex uh, research firm and reported in the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEE Spectrum Magazine. The study, which was conducted in 2006, focused on a 2005 data, which showed that Boeing was granted 405 patents that year, approximately 60% more than the second-in-place uh, second company. And had the strongest combined patent portfolio strength, something that a 1790 analysis called, quote, pipeline power, end quote, as measured by the originality and variety of patents, as well as other rate increase, increase in the number of patents obtained and the number of others in the industry citing those same patents. So for now, we will end this part of our show with a 
uh, idea of returning and uh, picking up where we left off in a future show. Is that okay, Mr. Producer Neil? Yeah, we'll plan that. Uh, got it in my plans. Now we'll just see if Dorothy can find a place on our schedule. Uh, I've got a song. I don't know what it sounds like. I forgot. I picked this song because of uh, the inventions in aviation and the patents that we just talked about. But when you stop to think about an airplane or airplanes uh, and all the various parts and components and even the design, uh, like Jim talked about warping the wing to make the turn, uh, which finally became the ailerons. And uh, I'm sure there was probably a Mr. Aileron out there somewhere. But uh, let's see what this song sounds like. It's a, it's a song dedicated to inventors. I have no clue what it's going to be about. Here we go. because it sounds like to me you guys trying to pronounce all those French names <laughs> the, the, the French were That's off and running stuff, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the Germans either yeah That's right. but yeah you're right George it's, it just is absolutely amazing how far we've come and um, now here we are uh, thinking about going to Jupiter yeah, that's a waste. I know it. I'm, well, I'm not we, thinking about it. <laughs> where are we going to be in the next hundred years, you know? Yeah, where? Uh, that's right. Well, that's our program for tonight, and um, I hope you enjoyed it. And special at the very beginning, a special tribute to all those that uh, have given their lives for the uh, 
freedom and liberty that we have and enjoy today. So that was beautiful. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've got a lot of good Mark. Yeah, I've got Mark on the line, and let's see what's happening to the New Eastern briefly. Uh, Mark, can you give us an update of what's going on? Well, Eastern has uh, one of their 767s coming out uh, painted this week, um, and uh, their big boys are coming out in the fall, which is rather exciting to me, the 777s. Okay. Uh, and I've been scouring around to see who's going to paint them because uh, Lima's too small to paint them, and I'm waiting for some people to get back to me to find out. I think it's in Miami, actually, that they're going to be painted, but I'm not sure. I don't have the confirmation on that yet. But I think that would be, I'd just love to see one or two of the 777s sitting next to the 7-6s at the gate. Right. Um, yeah. I think that'd be, and nowadays, I mean, they can get those 7-7s for pretty cheap because everyone's giving them up. Yeah, Delta's giving up 18 of them, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Americans yeah. in the talks of going with 7-8s instead of 7-7s, seven and uh, United's mm. going to give up their their heavy 7-6s. Uh, so Eastern will have quite a bit to choose from of really high-caliber aircraft. And they're still on yeah. for San Diego. They're just awaiting wait, that um, uh, approval. Um and uh, that's about that's all I have to say. But on the well, aviation, when you said the aviation, um, my grandmother went and covered wagon, a hundred miles in Iowa, wow. and years later she got on a Pan Am seven four seven, bound for Argentina. So oh, what yeah. was going through her brain? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Has anyone heard anything about the seven 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 X? Program have they canceled that or or just no, uh, where that's still, that's still on? Who is it? Emirates took quite a few, I think, already. Oh, they. Oh, okay. So it's being marketed now. Okay, and it's being flown oh. now, I guess. All right. And I think Eastern has. I think Eastern has the right aircraft too, the seven six, because of Boeing's yeah. decision to come out with a seven six seven plus and a seven five seven plus. So How many it seems people like can be on the seven six seven? Plus? How many passengers? How many passengers um, well, can be on two, the On the three hundred it's two forty four, but with this virus thing, um at six feet apart, it's probably a hundred and forty four, something like that. Huh. But they can make up it for it on the seven six seven. Because they have cargo. They can do a lot of cargo down below. Well, that, that's true. Whereas on the narrow-body aircraft, I don't know how they're going to do it. I've been publicizing some uh, on my PA Coastal site some things where they have new seating. Uh, that The seats sort of wrap, have a, a barrier between each seat. And they're sort of staggered instead of straight across. Mm-hmm. Um and it looks fancy, but it looks really expensive to put in, too. Okay. Thank you so much, Mark, for your update. And, uh, Dorothy, good to hear your voice again. Thank you. Yeah. How are you, how are you feeling? Well, I'm coming along. I could be a little bit better, but, you know, like everything else, it takes time. So, um, 
It will be fine. It will work itself out at some point. Uh, more rest, okay. and I'll be good. Good. Anyway, I was anxious to see that we have uh, another two members who have joined us. So our count now is 1,042. Uh, and that's super. We're just very happy about that. Uh, we, uh, Judy, uh, didn't leave her last name. Uh, she's the new member, and she's out of Minnetonka, Minnesota. Uh, lives in MSP and joined us May 18th. Unfortunately, as I said, there was no first name, but uh, she did work for EAL from February, uh, February 67 till 1991 in Miami, uh, Ord, and um, ATL. Uh, the other uh, gal that joined us is Aubrey Reed, and she's out of St. Petersburg, Florida. Dorothy? Uh, hey, yes. Dorothy, let me correct that. That's uh, Captain Aubrey Reed. And uh, he joined us. Uh, he's uh, oh, was the past guy. president. Yeah, past past president of REPA, I think. Uh, Jim, Absolutely. do you remember how many? Yes, he was. Yeah, 2007. Wow, 2007. I yeah. That. That's and wonderful. he and I lived in the same neighborhood for several years, and I've been chatting with him via email, and we were recalling uh, our our beginning with Eastern because he was hired a week ahead of me and uh and then we were living in the same neighborhood there in Atlanta when we came to Atlanta and uh so he's um, an old time friend good guy i always right. call him clark i always jim i always call him clark kent because he looked <laughs> like superman you know that he turned did. into clark he kent <laughs> Yeah, he uh, worked until 1991, and he lists down Atlanta, Miami, uh, Chicago, Boston, JFK, IH, and DCA. So that's wonderful. Glad to hear that he was a he's a he. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had one male that came in that was for Norma Jean Borger. And uh, she sent in that, as coincidence was, she was somewhere, and she ran into someone the other day. Come to find out, it was the gal, 56 years later, mind you, the gal and his, uh, or the guy and his wife, uh, and she saw them and ran into them. Now, she only saw them on her very first day. I don't know how they recognized her after all this time, and I thought that was a pretty damn coincidence. Very, very nice <laughs> to hear. So you never know when you're going to meet one of our Eastern people, and that was uh, a good thing. Um, Thursday's show coming up, uh, we have, of course, the Reaper Radio Hour, and that's a, a great half hour, uh, plus uh, the gentlemen all stay together and give us a lot of new stories, so that's great to hear. Anyone at all can join us at that 3 p.m. hour every Thursday. Uh, the archive episodes are in our episodes on the uh, website under the Reaper Radio Hour. So be sure to check them out if you haven't heard any at all. They're great uh, memories of Eastern. Uh, our next uh, Eastern program will be Monday, June 1st. Uh, can you believe it's June 1st already? 
and that's the Eastern Music and Movie theme songs of the 70s. So let's see what Neil has chosen for us. Um, I, too, want to thank a brand-new sponsor, January 17th, uh, uh, 2011. She joined us, and her name is Rita Morrell, and she contributed a $50 donation to the EAL radio show. Rita's name is placed on our website along with some of the others under the sponsors list, Falcon Sponsor. Rita, uh, uh, she is in her 90s, believe it or not, and she was a flight attendant for Eastern at both Newark and Miami. Uh, We, too, of course, want to thank our major sponsor, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, REPA, for the generous donation. And you folks all know that without our donations to keep our show airing, uh, it would not be possible. So we want to thank each and every one of you that have given us over the years uh, we do appreciate every single one. And all those members can be found, too, under our Sponsors tab, and they're all listed under the categories. Remember, donations of $40 or more will entitle you to receive a, a signed copy of Neil's popular Eastern Book of Memories, Swings of Many. Now, that you'll get free with your donation, so please consider making a donation uh, as I said, that keeps our radio show on the air and our two websites going. Uh, you can send any correspondence. Uh, donations can be made up to, to the EAL radio show and send them to Captain Neil Holland at the EAL radio show, 9776 San Jose Boulevard, Suite 12B in Jacksonville, Florida, 32257. So that's it for tonight, and back to you, Neil. Okay, we're going to land this airplane to a full stop. I'm going to turn it over to Atlanta Tower. <clears throat> Atlanta Tower, Atlanta Tower. This is good old Eastern 459, and we got the airport in sight. If traffic permits, we'd like runway 27 right to the west. Roger, Eastern 459. We got you in sight. The wind is 260 at 10 knots. No reported traffic. You're clear to land on runway 27 right. Is that you, Hop? Yeah, that's Hop Harrigan again. <laughs> Bringing it on in right now. Glad to talk to you.
And Neil Holland's playing our sign-off music made popular by Merle Haggard, Silver Wings. Left me standing here behind Silver Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world, and good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. Now, all of us, when I count to three, one, two, three, good night, Eastern. Good night, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. You guys. Great show, guys. Okay. Good night. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Good job. Only fading out of sight. Thanks a lot. Good night, Good night. 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 Good night.